Hello, everybody, and welcome to the OMC Mindfulness in the Workplace podcast series. Each of these sessions explores a different aspect of mindfulness in different workplace contexts, as well as key themes that we believe will be relevant to support you. Previous episodes have included topics such as mindfulness in the workplace, offering mindfulness online, mindfulness in a hospital setting, and mindfulness in education. So make sure you go back and listen to them if you haven't already had the chance to do so. I'm Susan Peacock from the University of Oxford Mindfulness Center. I'm one of the facilitators of the Mindfulness in the Workplace program. And today we are going to be exploring the relationship between mindfulness and emotional intelligence. I'm delighted to welcome Michelle Maldonado. Michelle is the founder and CEO of Lucencia, a firm dedicated to human flourishing and mindful business transformation. As a result of her work and impact, in 2020, Michelle was recognized among the 12 powerful women in the mindfulness movement. She's also been recognized as Woman of the Year, top corporate leader, and inducted into the Golden Key International Honor Society for her holistic approach to cultivating leadership presence, compassion, well-being, and performance impact. Michelle is a former corporate lawyer and business leader who understands diverse industry sectors, mission, and service. She is passionate about learning, helping elevate human consciousness, and alleviating suffering in the world. Her work focuses on personal and professional leadership development at the pivotal intersection of mindfulness, unconscious bias, emotional intelligence, authenticity, and compassion. Michelle also serves as senior faculty for the 1440 Multiversities Leadership Center, which is the founding faculty for Daniel Goleman's inaugural Emotional Intelligence Coaching Certification Program, and is a senior fellow with Bill George's True North Leadership Program. Her work has been featured in conferences and publications associated with the World Economic Forum, the Mindful Leader Summit, and Leadership Excellence, to name just a few. Michelle, that's pretty impressive. And just so lovely to have you here today. It is such a pleasure to be here with you and to be in this conversation. So thank you for the invitation. Thank you for the time together. I'm really interested to know how people became interested in mindfulness. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about how you personally became passionate about mindfulness. Absolutely. Well, I was actually, I had the great fortune of being introduced to mindfulness when I was a little girl. I grew up in uh, the New England sort of uh, Northeast region of the United States in a very small town. And I was raised uh, Roman Catholic. However, one summer when I was seven years old, I had the good fortune to go out to one of our states called Wyoming and spent the summer there with my grandmother's sister. She was everybody's favorite and she happened to be Buddhist. 
And so she brought me around uh, the community and introduced me to traditions of uh, some of our first native indigenous communities. And that was very eye-opening and exciting for me. And then in the afternoon, what, the first week I was there, she said, would you like to come sit quietly with me? And I remember thinking, that doesn't sound like fun. Why aren't we going to the swimming pool? Why aren't we going to ride bikes? And then I said, wait, she's the favorite aunt. Maybe there's something to this sitting quietly. So I said, sure. It was myself and my older sister. And we went into her room and I got up in the chair and I sat down. And the only thing she said to me as she walked behind me, she placed her hands on my head and said, quiet here and then moved her hands down to my heart and said, so you can be here. And then she quietly walked to her chair and said, and you can sit as long as you like. And when you're ready, you can quietly get up and go, even if I'm not finished. And I remember thinking, um, this feels really good. I, I wouldn't have had the right language for it, but what I knew was that I felt different after it. I felt when I emerged, went back outside, things seemed brighter, seemed, things seemed more fun. And uh, I just held on to that practice even after that summer was over and continued it when I moved back, when I went back to Massachusetts. And it became one of my lifelines as a teenager, as a young uh, woman in college. And then later, as I started my professional career, it was the anchor for me to help keep me centered and grounded in so much dynamism and uncertainty that happens in in life wow that is such a powerful story and such a moving image of something that you were introduced to as a little girl and came to to really connect with at a physical and an embodied way that then without knowing any of the the, the sort of language around it you felt it and then kind of came, it almost sounds like came home to it again and again. Yes. And, and in fact, you're right. I had no language because my great aunt and our family, uh, aunts are called Titi. It's an affectionate form of aunt. And so it was my Titi Nancy. And she never used any meditation language. And it wasn't until I was 18 that I learned that what I'd been doing all those years was called meditation. And that's when I started to learn about different types of meditation, uh, different benefits. I knew anecdotally, you know, from experiential moments, what it felt like and how it supported me. But then I began to learn a little bit more broadly. And coincidentally, she's in her 90s now. But when she was in her late 80s, I remember going back and asking her, why didn't you just tell me we were going to meditate? And she said, you were seven. I wanted you to use your own language in your world to connect to who you were connecting to. The words didn't matter. It was your words that mattered. And she wanted me to have, she said, a worldview. And, you know, in my younger years, I thought that was so important because when you come from small towns, sometimes you can really have a very small view, or if you haven't traveled or been intersecting with other people, different kinds of people, you have a smaller view potentially of what the world is like. And so she would always say, you have to have a world view. And then as I began to grow my own personal practice, I realized that it wasn't just a worldview. And it wasn't just a human view, it was like an all of us view, which included more than just humans, it includes oh. everything. Mm. And she laid the very strong seeds for me to be able to grow in that kind of awareness and appreciation 
so that when I did show up in the workplace or as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, that the quality and nature of my presence was informed by that. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, great. So now that we've learned a little about the how you were introduced to mindfulness, why do you think it is such an integral building block for leadership success? And why do you feel this is needed, especially in our current times? You know, it's so interesting. So much of what happens to us individually and collectively happens in cycles. You know, we, we've kind of been here before, but it was a little different before. And, and so one of the things I would say is that that is truth, regardless of whether we're looking at the workplace, the family, the community, or the larger diaspora that makes up the human species. And if we take that into consideration as we move into the world of work, mindfulness can help leaders and, and let me just pause for a moment and say that when I say leaders, it is not dependent on title and scope of responsibility and whether or not you have people reporting into you. That you don't have to be a people manager to be a leader. It is how are we leading ourselves? And that necessarily connects to our titles and our roles because that's how it gets expressed. So the mindfulness to me helps us cultivate our way of being that then informs our way of doing and leading. And it necessarily rests on a solid bed of awareness. Now, a lot of us would say it's self-awareness. And, and while that is true, that is the starting point, it's not enough. And so I encourage people, especially in the leadership capacity, you look at mindfulness as this sort of, you know, Actually, some of the folks here might even be aware of the definition that's borrowed from the Mindful Nation UK report, which talks about mindfulness being paying attention to the present moment uh, in the mind, body, and surrounding environment with an attitude of kindness and curiosity. So leaders, when we do that, that's our first introduction to this notion that context matters, right? So even in the definition, we have context. What are we doing in the present moment? Well, the context is three things, the mind, the body, and the surrounding environment. The same thing can happen when we think about awareness. So self-awareness being that mindful sort of awareness right in the center, that's you. The next center out would be others. And then the third center a circle out is our ecosystems, our surrounding environment. So the through line for anybody and particularly leaders, is starting at that center point and allowing that self-awareness to thread through, to travel through all the other cascading levels of awareness. And when we do that as leaders, based on a foundation of mindfulness, we start to be able to recognize things, see things that other people don't potentially see or see them sooner, be more innovative and creative, and be more skillful in our response ability, our capability to respond to difficult conversations, difficult people, difficult situations. And it offers an opportunity for us to show up differently that is more choiceful, more awake, and more skillful. And that makes a big difference because all of that sets the tone for culture and climate and whether or not people feel like they belong and whether there's psychological safety. So the leader presence matters and it cascades and create ripples. 
And if we are intentional and practicing mindfulness, and which is different, by the way, from mindfulness meditation, right? But if, if we are embodying a mindful presence, we really open up the door for many things to take root and flourish, the least of which, or the most of which is each and every person we touch. Mm. Wonderful. These sound like qualities and even aspirations that most leaders really want to embody. What do you think gets in the way? And do you have some suggestions for how leaders might overcome these obstacles or challenges? Yeah, that's a good question because listen, times are so dynamic. They're so fluid. Uh, In fact, there's a very common phrase used in military populations in the U.S. called VUCA, Mm -hmm. and that means volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And right now, these times all over the world, I mean, certainly people can look to the United States and see what's happening here from a social, economic, health, racial perspective and see the transformation that's happening. It's very difficult to experience, difficult to watch, but probably in many ways is necessary for us to have these conversations, but these conversations are happening all over the world. And the reality is, is that this is what we also bring into work because all of us are experiencing what we're experiencing. We're carrying our own trauma, our own perspectives and perceptions. And then we walk into the virtual or physical doors of work. So we all want to be good people. And we all are good people. You know, this is the thing that's really challenging for us to understand is that when you have conversations or you have insights or somebody brings something to your attention that doesn't match your definition of how you perceive your own behavior. And part of the the gap is because we want to be measured by our intention, not our impact. And, but people are always measuring us by our impact. And we're like, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't mean to do that. And then there's this gap, there's this tension. Well, I didn't mean to do that. So why are you getting so upset? Why are you, that's you. So we have that piece as leaders. And then we also have the pieces of this lens of judgment because the brain categorizes, right? This is what the brain's very efficient and it is scanning for threat while it's also simultaneously hardwired to be in connection and community. So we hold this crazy tension. And so when we go into places like work, we are bringing all of ourselves into those doors, into those walls, and we're having different perceptions and misperceptions happen simultaneously while we are aspiring to be the best leaders we can be. So we've got a really full plate. That's before (laughs) we even get to our to-do list for the day. And so The thing that I always invite people to do is like when you start to notice the contrast between how you're showing up and how you want to show up, how you wish to show up, what the nature and quality of your presence is now, and, you know, how do you close the gap between now and where you wish to be? And I I really think it's simple, but not easy. (laughs) And what that means is like, oh, you have to be aware, you have to self-correct, you have to assess, you have to be patient, and you have to be kind and self-compassionate in the um, road to being compassionate and kind to others. And people like, that's it? That's all I have to do? It doesn't even seem like, I don't know, what's the tactical things I need to do? And this is very Western, right? This approach to things is very Western. We want to get right to the outcome. And say that thing right there, that's what we need to change. 
but we aren't even looking at really the reasons why that thing exists in the first place. We may look at tweaking a process or a protocol or something, but what, but we created it. So we necessarily, as part of the reverse engineering, have to look at the inner world and sort of what am I holding? What am I carrying? What am I expressing? That is leading to the conditions that create that with either by myself or in concert with other people. So I think that the intention to be self-reflective, to take wise and compassionate action is really, really critical. And then along the way, having the patience and the compassion to stay the course, to create that new habit change. And that's hard stuff. So mm. we can say, oh, this is what needs to be done. But doing it is an entirely mm. different story. Mm. And creating mm. new habit takes hard work and persistence yeah. and perseverance. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you've just said, there's so much in that, this whole kind of when we feel under threat, becoming more polarized, how do we equip ourselves with these skills that for some weird reason are called soft skills, and yet they're the skills of life and of being human and of connection. So oftentimes we hear people talk about mindfulness as another soft skill, that it's a nice to have rather than a need to have. How do we get people to understand the true benefits of mindfulness in the workplace in a way that anchors commitment, transformation, and change? Yes. Yes, I love this question because uh, it taps into a very strong belief I have around the way we often try to teach and inform people about things that are important to life. And our tendency is to treat them as siloed things. And so if we always treat these things as something over here and a special training, they never get interwoven, they never get threaded as if they are part of what we do every day. Now, I'll give you an example. So I used to practice law. And when I went to law school, I remember being so surprised that my first year of law school, that first semester, we had a two credit, not even a full three or four credit course, a two credit, two hour course on ethics. And then we never talked about ethics again. And I thought, how is that possible? Ethics should be included in every single course, every single discussion around legal argument and how do you serve in this capacity? And that's what we do with soft skills. That's what we do with mindfulness. And that's what we do with a lot of things. We do it with diversity and inclusion training. We treat it like it's something separate from what it means to lead. And so my suggestion that I think would be a more effective way to not only message, but learn, integrate, embody, and apply all of these things that mindfulness is, is to not treat it as it's separate from who you are and what you do. Mm -hmm. And so that means that if you're taking a leadership development training, that there is conversation in there about self-awareness. There is conversation in there about what are compassionate responses? What is compassion? Clarifying the myth of what it is and what it isn't, because a lot of people, and the same with you know meditation or emotional intelligence, understanding what it looks like, because there's often a misperception of what it means to be mindful, what it means to be self-aware, and what it means to have compassion in the workplace. Compassion is a great one, because oftentimes you have 
people who say, but that's, that's really soft. That's like a hug. That makes me feel like a therapist. I don't have time for that. I just need people to get their jobs done. And here's what I'll say. There's a famous quote by the late Maya Angelou. And she says that people will forget what you say. People will forget what you do, but people will never forget how you make them feel. And this, if you think about it, if you just pause and think about it for a moment, you can recall people in your life, whether people that you were, were your nightmare bosses or colleagues or the ones that were dreams. And if you think about it and sense into it, you notice how you felt when you were around them, how they made you feel they, you know, you felt like they had your back or you didn't feel safe around them because you knew that they were going to attack you, criticize you, take credit for your work or whatever it was. So we are feeling beings and as humans who are in leadership roles and responsibilities, we aren't necessarily in charge of the people. We are sort of in charge of caring for the people as we lead them. And the way to do that is to have a more holistic and integrated approach to what it means to be a leader. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I think we minimize the importance that things like what are typically called soft skills play. Mm. And it's very easy to, to integrate. You know, it's very, very easy to do that. It's this kind of underpinning and integrating it and weaving it into the culture of how things are done around here. I mean, do you feel that mindfulness by itself is enough? Or do you believe that other practices are important as companions for healthy and sustainable leadership and leader well-being. So I'm sure there are a lot of opinions and answers to this Mm -hmm. question. I believe that mindfulness, if we just use the definition that I shared earlier, I don't think it's enough alone in many ways. And that is because I think you also always must be speaking about practicing mindfulness with a practice of self-compassion, compassion. Because mindfulness alone can simply be used as a tool to focus, right? And if we focus, and that's what our ultimate point is, our objective is, we're leaving out the humanity in the equation. So there was a lot of conversation. I remember several years ago, Mindfulness made the cover of Time Magazine, and there was a lot of conversation about, well, just teaching people to focus their minds and train their minds without having the conversation of compassion is dangerous, because what that can lead to is it being a tool that really can treat people badly. You can use it as a tool to get people to work harder, you know, work more, give more without caring for themselves, and by saying, just relax it's okay, just relax. Okay, get back into it, right? That doesn't, that doesn't allow for self-care. It doesn't allow for care of another. And so I believe that the two should always at minimum be taught together. Now, the other thing I like is the framework of emotional intelligence because emotional intelligence, I think about, you know, if, you, if emotional intelligence were the car, the vehicle, the passengers are mindfulness, compassion, authenticity, all these things that you need and the vehicle allows you to express it appropriately. So emotional intelligence, we've got the self-awareness and that's like, that's the critical foundational skill of all the four key skills in emotional intelligence. And that is directly related to mindfulness, right? That's cultivating that self-awareness, the awareness of others. 
comes in a little later. And then the other piece of emotional intelligence is self-management. How do I meet what comes up? And in mindfulness, we have this concept of equanimity. How do we accept and embrace what is present? Well, in the vehicle, the framework of emotional intelligence, we do that through self-management techniques. And so I see them all being very important to do together. And then ultimately the remaining two skill sets of the four in emotional intelligence, the third is social awareness. That's the awareness of others and surroundings. And then the last part is relationship management or the leadership piece. So as you can see, if you have that vehicle or that framework, you put those things in there so that there is a holistic and healthy way to engage that is not only scalable, but sustainable and promotes resilience and well-being. Mm, wonderful, wonderful. Sometimes work can feel overwhelming or some may feel like embracing mindful leadership won't make a difference. So kind of why should I bother? What would you say to someone who is thinking and feeling this way? In other words, what can one person do and why is it important that we lean in? It is so easy when you are in an environment or you know, conditions around you seem hopeless uh, or you have a mindset that they will never change or things will never change. It's very easy to ask yourself, why bother? To kind of what some of my HR colleagues call rest in place. So RIP is usually rest in peace, but when you, you kind of retire in place at a job and you just say, I'm just going to be disengaged. And we know from the Gallup uh, poll from around the world that only about a third, I don't know what the exact number is right now, but we fluctuate between less than a third and around a third of people being actually engaged. And that's a whole heck of a lot of people that are either disengaged or actively disengaged. And that actively disengaged is scary because those people are really intentionally trying to sabotage things. So it is very easy to say as a self-preservation, as a self-protection mode to step back and say, why should I bother? Things aren't going to change. I need a job. I've got a family to care for, or I've got my own expenses and obligations to care for. It's very easy for us to step into a self-preservation mode or to give up and just be hopeless, but also find reasons why it's important to stay. And that's what makes it really hard for us. We feel stuck and we feel like we don't have choice. And what I've learned even in my own walk, that that actually is never a fully true story. Yes, there are, there are always situations that um, we feel, well, I can't, I need that money because I've got this healthcare thing or I've got, there are always truths to it. But one thing that is not true and that we have to be so careful of is that we don't have choice. There are always consequences to our choices, but we have to know that we always have a choice. And when we make a choice, we have to then think about what are the resources I need to support my decision so that I can make that choice and still be okay. Mm -hmm. And that's hard. But I think that it's important for us to be able to lean in because otherwise we give up our sense of self-agency. We mm -hmm. give up our sense of self-empowerment, which also aids to cultures that may be enabling toxicity or dysfunction. 
in ways that don't just hurt at the individual level, but also cascade through departments and ultimately through whatever product service that you are offering to the world, how you show up as an organization. The other thing that I always say to people is that, you know, all of us have different seasons in life. And so too do organizations, they are, everybody's at different stages. So the thing for us to be curious about and to inquire and seek is an understanding of where we are in our own stage and phase and trying to find an organization that is comparable in their stage of growth because organizations evolve as well. Say if you are a scale of one to five and you're, you're at a phase four and then you go to work for an organization that's at a phase two in their growth, there's a probably too great a gap to bridge and you may need to find something that is more in alignment. If after trying, you might make some headway that feels great, but you're gonna have to decide whether that's enough. But it always matters because when we stay silent, we become enablers Mm -hmm. and we also unwittingly engage in our own self-sabotaging, even if we think what we're doing is keeping our head down, not raising any, uh, I don't want anybody to notice me. I just want to get my work done, get out, get my paycheck. That will only work for so long on a personal level at minimum. Professionally, it may be like, I got to get out of here. But on a physical, emotional, personal level, that is not a sustainable strategy because it harms us. It harms our health, our well-being. And so giving up and feeling like I can't make a difference may be true in that organization. There's a transition that needs to be made, or it may simply be an adjustment of mindset too. Because remember, we bring all our stuff into the workplace. So looking at what's my perception, what's the lens that I am viewing everything from? Do I need to widen my aperture? Do I need to do some other things? Maybe there are some particularly toxic or difficult people. And here's a way mindfulness can work with that. And I'm going to give a personal anecdote. I worked in an organization and at the time I was in middle management And there was somebody who was in executive management and we didn't have a very good relationship from day one. We just didn't click. She had a reputation of being a bully Mm -hmm. and I didn't like bullies. I was bullied in elementary school. I didn't realize at the time that what was triggering for me was my sense of having been bullied as a child and nobody should be bullied. And certainly as adults, like what's going on. And so I had all this stuff. So whenever I had to have a meeting with her or whatever, I could feel myself kind of stiffening and like ready for fight. And I started doing just like me loving kindness meditations with her as the focus of my meditation. And I had to do it for about two months or so. And all of a sudden I could feel things starting to crack and shift. And all of a sudden, one day I was surprised to see that I could see her as human. which sounds silly, but that's what we do. We dehumanize other people. We we don't allow ourselves to see them as someone's precious child, as someone who wants to be happy, as someone who who may be hurting themselves and may be behaving in this way because they think that's what they're supposed to do or they don't know how to do it differently or they don't care, but even underneath that is something deeper. So that actually helped me and it allowed me to show up differently in her presence. And when that happened, she didn't have the same thing to push up against and she started to change. 
And by time, all our time at that organization was done, we were very good colleagues. We were cordial and professional and at ease in each other's presence and worked well together. So there's always choice. There's always something we can do for ourselves. And that matters because when we do nothing, the message we give to ourselves over and over and over again is that we are powerless and we always have our own power. Absolutely. That, that kind of level of just sitting with something and not stepping in can be hugely debilitating. Great example. Thank you. So just in closing, a question that we like to ask all our guests, which is if there was one piece of advice to people wanting to teach in a workplace setting, what might you offer? We have to remember that our job is not to convince or convert or judge. If we can approach mindfulness in the workplace as an invitation to stepping into our highest and best selves, then we can let go of trying to force it. Mm -hmm. We have to meet people and organizations where they're at. That might also mean that you have to change your language. Mm -hmm. It may mean that you can't just walk into your organization and start using a whole bunch of terminology from Buddhist traditions that people won't be able to understand or aren't ready for more importantly. And so you have to intentionally and carefully choose your language and check yourself the entire time Are you finding that you're getting agitated because they just don't get it (laughs) or it's not moving fast enough, or I'm not getting the funding and they want me to do this on my own. Or finally I got permission to do it and only two people are showing up, right? All these things happen. And let me just remind you that everything that is spectacular in the world always started with a seed, always. Nothing ever started with a big thing. And when you notice the big thing, don't get fooled in thinking, wow, that was amazing. That just happened. There was a whole lot of stuff that took place before the big thing happened. So looking at it as a journey and really enjoying and discovering and being curious along the way, because if you and your organization can figure out how to speak to people who are there in a way that they can receive it. That is a skill, a talent, a gift that you get to take with you wherever you go. And it's also a gift that has legacy roots, right? Not just for you, but for the organization and for the people who embrace those parts and pieces of it. Mm, Lovely. That's so great. It almost feels like in our conversation today, you know, that little seed that was planted in you as a seven-year-old. Look at where it's taken you. And and I love the work that we do, which is about planting seeds. And you never know quite where that goes. Yes. This has been just so lovely. Thank you so much for sharing your time, your wisdom, your experience. Mm -hmm. And thank you to our listeners for making the time to connect with us in this conversation. So look forward to connecting with you again very soon.